Good morning. Welcome to First Universalist Unitarian Church of Wausau. My name is Sarah Thurs, and I'm a proud member of this congregation, which I've been attending for 17 years now. I'd like to extend a special welcome to everyone joining us here today and those of you watching on our church YouTube channel. Since 1858, UUWASA has served as a vital voice for liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people, just as you are, regardless of age or sexual orientation, ethnicity or economic situation. Wherever you are in life's journey, please know that you are welcome here. And please tell a friend. Tell someone who may not vote the same as you on April 4th. They're welcome here as well. That's our work as Universalist Unitarians, to be universally welcoming. All right, I will stop editorializing and stick to the words I've been given. We are currently worshiping both in person and online, so be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and our Facebook and Instagram for uh, updates and announcements such as these. Our first Sunday's potluck, hosted by our magnificent choir, is next Sunday, April 2nd. If you can, please bring a dish to share and stay after next Sunday's service for food and fellowship. Secondly, UUWASA is celebrating Passover here at church on Thursday, April 6th at 6 p.m. The Seder will include a reading of the Passover story and a potluck dinner of traditional and contemporary foods. Please sign up on the sign-up sheet in the atrium if you wish to attend. And finally, UUWASA is hosting a Red Cross blood drive on Tuesday, April 11th. Please contact Donica if you'd like to volunteer to welcome and check in donors during the drive and you can sign up to donate blood at redcrossblood.org. And with that, let us gather our hearts and our minds for worship. Please join me in reciting the church's chalice lighting. You'll find the words in today's order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. We gather on this ancestral home of indigenous peoples, home of the Anishinaabe, the Menominee, Potawatomi, the Ho-Chunk Nation. All churches sit on native lands in this country, lands purchased through treaties that were constantly broken, stolen through lies, peoples violently forced from their ancestral lands. So we remember we remember, we learn about this history. We remember all those people damaged in Indian boarding schools. Unitarians managed a boarding school. Children punished for speaking their language, trying to maintain their culture. We also remember the Lakota's spiritual concept of metakayasin. Metakayasin, we are all related. We are all inextricably interconnected. And so we remember our obligations to good stewardship of these lands, remember our responsibility to establish and maintain right relations with their original 
inhabitants. So this house, this house of stone and wood and concrete, sight and scent, this house is for the ingathering of nature and human nature. It is a house of friendships, a haven in trouble, an open room for the encouragement of our struggle. It is a house of freedom, guarding the dignity and worth of every person. It offers a platform for the free voice, for declaring both in times of security and in times of danger, the full and undivided conflict of opinion. It is a house of truth-seeking, where scientists can encourage devotion to their quest, where mystics can abide in a community of searchers. It is a house of art, adorning its celebrations with melodies and handiworks. It is a house of prophecy, outrunning times past and times present in visions of growth and progress. This house is a cradle for our dreams, the workshop of our common endeavor. So come, let us worship, let us shape worth, that which is worth our time and our effort. Let us worship together. Our opening hymn is numbers 361, Enter, Rejoice, and Come In, in your gray hymnals. and come in today will be a joyful day enter rejoice and come in open your ears to the song open your ears to the song today will be a joyful day enter rejoice and come in hearts everyone open your hearts everyone today will be a joyful day and to rejoice and come in don't be afraid of some change don't be afraid of some change today will be a joyful day and come in, enter, rejoice, and come in, enter, rejoice, and come in, today will be a joyful day, enter, rejoice, and come in. Please join me in your affirmation printed in the order of service. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer. To dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge and freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony with the divine.
Thus do we covenant with each other. And join me with in the doxology. From all that dwell below the skies, let songs of hope and faith Please be seated for the story for all ages. Wow. So if I was to talk about how we explain faith to children with a physical object, I would have to tell you about how Ari uses string. We frequently have yarn as one of our opening projects or opening uh, activities where we get to know each other and we pass it around the room to see maybe who likes tacos, who here likes tacos. Way more kids than already, but I see lots of great hands. And we would connect all of you and we would go through this and who likes video games and who likes playing outside and who likes, oh, I see some hands. Uh, and eventually we'd have a big web strung between all of you. And then we would talk about how it's our job to care for the web. And it doesn't connect just us here in this building, but it connects us to our wider community. And if we tug on the web with love, that can be felt in other places in the web. But if we drop the web, or what piece we're holding, or cause harm to the web, like cut it, the web slowly falls apart. It's because we're all connected to each other. So I want to share a story with you this morning called The Invisible Web. It was by Patrice Karst. It was illustrated by Joanne Levitroff and published by the publisher, <laughs> Little Brown and Company. The very best news ever has begun to spread all over the world, one heart at a time. Shouted out from the mountaintops, every single one of us is connected to those things we love by invisible strings. That means Giovanna and her daddy are always together, even though he moved to a new house. Omar can feel tugs of love from his parents, even though he's living far away at school. Mr. Chang still feels Mrs. Chang close by, even though she died such a very long time ago. And you, at this very moment, may feel the string someone close to you, even though they aren't there. But you can't see it, but it's real. Our strings reach to everyone we know, they travel far and wide to families and friends and classmates and coaches, to bus drivers and babysitters, neighbors and pets, to aunts and uncles and grandparents and grandchildren, and to countless other people. And all of those people have hundreds of strings. Soaring high over rocky peaks and across the seven seas, deep into jungles and valleys and winding through the busiest of cities. All of these strings crisscross one another and create a nest that covers the planet, interlacing us together, cradling us forever. The invisible web. The web has no borders and wraps every continent. Within it live butterflies and flowers and starfish and seahorses, lions and ants, rivers and snowstorms, and all human beings. Giovanna, Omar, Mr. Chang, and of course you and me too. Some say it even reaches our ancestors and to those we cherish in the beyond. One tug on a string sends love to every one of us woven together in this divine tapestry. 
And that means just one good deed travels across the entire web. Everything is linked. But sometimes folks forget. When they can't feel their strings, they forget about the invisible web. And that's when strings get tangled up. Like when lonely Louisa isn't invited to sit at every, with everyone at lunchtime. Or when sad Stefano wishes his friend Marcos wasn't so bossy when they played. Or when Mrs. Patel struggles at work without help and she just wants to quit. Even violence and war can interrupt when too many of us forget the web. When strings are ignored, they become weak and begin to unravel. But the more people who care for the web, the stronger it remains. The web feels like every parent since the beginning of time holding and protecting each one of us in millions of gentle arms. What could be stronger than all those hands holding us close? So many supportive fingers can always find a way to untangle strings so that love can flow again. But it's up to every one of us to spread the word. Our time is right now. As we can tell our family and friends, sisters will remind brothers, who will write to cousins, who will call the great-grandparents, who will just nod and smile if they have, as they have always known. If we remember the web and tug at it often, nobody will ever feel left out. We will see others more clearly. The people of the world will look into each other's eyes. They will smile at one another. And when one of them cries, they will all want to help. And they do. Marcos apologizes to Stefano, for, who forgives his friend, and they have been having even more fun playing. Someone helps Mrs. Patel at work, and she tells her what a great job she's doing, and she remembers she's important and feels happy. And Louisa feels warm and bubbly inside when a few of the kids in her class ask her to join them under the banyan tree for lunch. She knows right then and there that the invisible web is real. After school, Louisa cries with joy as she strokes her cat, who purrs the news to the stars, and the stars whisper the secret to the clouds who share it with the songbirds, who serenade the world with this exquisite melody of love. At the start of each morning and all during the day until the invisible web glitters in the magic of twilight, the owls take over and hoot the news throughout the night. The invisible web is alive. Its time is right now. It breathes as we breathe, pulsating all over the earth, the single heartbeat of life and love. And do you know what makes us all? One big family. And that is our story for today. Ari is on spring break this Sunday. We'll be back next week. So we're worshiping as one community. So I invite you to bless those here and those joining us online with May Peace Surround You. The words are printed in your order of worship. So when you are offering your gifts at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, 
and then come and offer your gift. The mission and ministry of UUWASA is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass the plate today, we've left a basket <clears throat> for our offertory in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a monetary gift in on your way out. You may also visit our website, uuwasa.org, to make a one-time or recurring, we like those, <laughs> gift with your credit card or debit card. Thank you. Thank you for your generous support of the fellowship and the faith and the fun that this beloved church offers us all. On the breastplate of St. Patrick, it is said to have been written, I bind unto myself today the virtues of the starlit heaven, the glorious sun's life-giving rays, the whiteness of the moon at evening time. I bind until, unto myself today the flashing of the lightning free, the whirling wind's tempestuous shock, the stable earth, the deep salt sea around the old eternal rocks. Please join me in a time of meditation, of quiet, of prayer.
I invite you to remain where you are and open your hymnals to number 352, Find a Stillness. In his book, The World in Six, uh, I'm sorry, not that book. No, that's not the book. Um, <laughs> oh, I have it. Um, ah, A History of Religion in Five and a Half Objects, Bringing the Spiritual to Its Senses. Brent Plate writes, Stones are set, cut, clutched, chiseled, and hurled. They ride in our pockets for luck on journeys, or climb into our boots, turning travels into travails. Five small ones in a sling can take down a giant, while one alone might kill two birds. They are fingered for protection, worn as rings and necklaces, studied for scientific discovery, used as a tool in capital punishment, and seen as sites of supernatural power. Well, if all that sounds too grand, we might just put them in a box, call them our pet, and sell them by the millions. Those of you who were around in 1975 are pet rocks. Made the creator a millionaire in, within a few months, they were re-released in 2014. Stones are.
In Jamie Meyer's book, Drumming the Soul Awake, um, he's a Minneapolis musician and heads many drum circles. He writes, there is a moment that happens at every single drum I have ever led. We drum for five minutes or 15 or 25 or 60. The rhythm can be soft and languid, a moonbeat, a dream beat, a beat that entices the eyes shut and opens the dreaming eye. Or it can be explosive and raucous, a sweaty, panting, hold on for life stallion ride across the wild hills. It does not matter what kind of beat we are doing. When we stop, there is silence. And then there is the exhale. Everyone in the room breathes in deeply, and then we all exhale together. And the sound of that satiated sigh, the kind of sigh that lovers release after they have unfolded their wings at the same time, the kind of sigh I imagine the earth breathes all through autumn, the kind of sigh I imagine the Holy One lets loose after each birth of every creature, great or small, and after their death, too. It is a cleansing breath, a freeing breath, a breath of solid contentment. This exhale is all you need to know about why people drum together. Well, I read a lot. As you can tell, I'm, I've already thrown out the names of a couple books. Sometimes I seem to organize my reading by, by title. Uh, titles entice me. For a while, I was reading books with soul or sacred in the title, and these are just a few of them. Soul Matters, Care of the Soul, Soul Work, Writing for the Soul Awake, oh, writing, to, writing the Soul Awake, yes, The Sacred Tree, In the Absence of the Sacred. Ah, I could go on. But, and then it was Numbers. The World in Six Songs, History of the World in Twelve Maps, Fifteen Dogs, and Today, Religion in Five and a Half Objects. Now, in all of this reading, I try to find meaning and connections. I'm a, an English lit major and philosophy ethics graduate, so I, I, can, really, I can really stretch those meanings and, and connections, as you'll be able to see. And that's probably where I get my working definition of religion. As an enter I stretch those meanings um, so that we can can find something to grasp onto, something to hold onto and, and explain to somebody else when we're trying to explain what our religion entails. Even if you don't like that religion word religion, that person that you're talking with may that is a word that they can identify with. For me, a religion is an enterprise in which I and, and we try to find the connections the head-wise, the heart-wise, the sense in our lives. So S. Brent Plate and his book um, points out that no one-line definition of religion is adequate and argue, argues that whatever religion is, it is not simply a matter of dogma and creeds and beliefs. And we've shown that here we, we don't all believe everything. We certainly don't have dogma and creeds. I do not ask you questions in which you give me the rote answer that is in your catechism. Wow, those were the days. Plate wants to lift up religion as an embodied set of practices. 
So whether those practices are lighting a chalice or waving a censer filled with incense, whether we light candles or place stones, put slips of paper in an ancient wall, hang our prayer-filled flags or drum circles, classical music or guitar with washtub bass, whether we sing or are sung to, whether we share communion or coffee, all these practices done with care and attention can be called religious. These objects and practices, practices are, are not sacred or holy or, or religious in themselves. They, they serve as metaphors, as what he calls verbal viaducts, describing or reenacting re our sacred, holy, spiritual, mystical, whatever you want to call them, experiences, ways that we describe our experiences other than in words. Although I'm going to throw a lot of words out at you. Ah, what a conundrum. Objects and practices serve as links between the known and the unknown. So he has five tangible objects that Plate talks about. And the first is stones, talismans, amulets, altars, memorials. I have a few stones um, down here on our table, our altar. Stones mark special events. Um, the Egyptian pyramids, the cornerstone of a building. Stones mark boundaries, sometimes the boundaries between the everyday, the ordinary, and the, 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 the quotidian, and the other. Whether you think of the, the other as a big O or a small O. Um, I think of the Japanese tori, those, those stones upright and across, usually out in the outdoors, through which you you walk from ordinary space to something other. The circle of stones in a druid ceremony. Um, stones show the way, like the Inuit Inukshuk. In Jerusalem, we find a sacred stones of three of the world's great religions. The Wailing Wall is the western wall of the ancient Jewish temple, and people come to, to touch, to bow, to write their prayers, and slip them into a crack in the wall. And then there is the Dome of the Rock, which commemorates Muhammad the Prophet's night journey to the seven heavens to receive instruction in the holy rituals of Islam, including prayer and fasting and pilgrimage. And then there is the Christian, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's said to hold the stone of anointing, the stone upon which Jesus' body was prepared for burial. Now, now thousands of years before these stones were, were made, put up and made holy by human attention and human hands, 5,000 years ago, the standing stones of Stonehenge were lifted up. And 6,000 years before that, a massive T-shaped stone pillars were erected in Kobekli Tepe in southeastern Turkey. We've been using stones to mark places that are other. Now, now rock, rock is sedimentary, igneous, metamorphic. You need to know this if you work crossword puzzles. <sighs> Formed by forces volcanic, geologic, and catastrophic. Stones are hard, cold, heavy, deaf, and dumb, and blind. 
unmoving unless moved by geologic or human forces. They're permanent, called adamantine. Ah, those English lit words. Adamantine, those 50-cent words, I call them. Impenetrable, they're unyielding. Yet those forces of geology and space and time, those forces of human handling and shaping, lifting and stacking, show us that even the hardest substance is in flux, formed, reformed, transformed. I take a rock into my hand, I, I put it in my pocket, and it becomes a stone, a memory, uh, a memory of walks along Lake Superior with my superior and stubborn little dog. <sighs> Lake Superior rocks are different. I can tell a picture of Lake Superior rocks. They're just gray or very light pink or white. They're really very blah, but they are Lake Superior. At the Unitarian Universalist Fellowship in Virginia, Minnesota, we have a bowl of water, and during our period of care and concern, we put a rock or a shell in that bowl of water. At the church in Duluth, it's a copper-rimmed circle of sand. We take a rock, we put it in the sand, and this process, this action, becomes a reaching out, a, a gathering of community, a, a hope, a prayer, a prayer of care, a concern, a prayer of joy. So that's stones. Um, and then there's incense or smells uh, or smoke. There is a story many, many of us know about three kings, three wise men bringing gifts to a newborn baby, um, gold. One brings gold. We can certainly understand why that was. Gold is, was precious then. It is precious now. And then there's myrrh and frankincense, which are extracted from trees native to Saudi Arabia and the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, Somalia. Now, myrrh in those times was more commonly used as a, a medicinal and antiseptic and anti-inflammatory. But incense, frankincense, pure, high-quality incense, while also could be used medicinally, was thought to quiet and calm the body and the mind. So offering of the solid gold, but offering also of sweet, healing smells. Now, indigenous peoples burn sweetgrass, sage, cedar, tobacco to accompany prayers, to smudge a celebrant, to wrap her or him in smoke, to purify, to protect, to heal, to create separate space. In the Hebrew Bible, incense was presented on the golden altar before the Lord in the temple. Now a Catholic priest swings a censer. It's a, an elaborately decorated um, piece made of, of gold, I think, with all sorts of holes in them. It's an, in, it's an elaborate incense holder. And he, of course, it's always he these days, um, Episcopal priests, I don't know if they uh, use censers also, but they use it to bless the congregation during special Holy Day celebrations. Every once in a while I go through my house with sage or sweetgrass and I sing a song in Hebrew. 
Sim shalom tovahuvraha, sim shalom. Sim shalom tovahuvraha, sim shalom. Sim shalom, grant peace, tovra, goodness, baracha, blessing on this house. Smoke connects those of us here below with those of us beyond, beyond, above, wherever. Smoke rises and opens lines of communication to the great spirit, to the gods and goddesses of the temple, to the one true God, to all the appliances in my house, that they may work again, and that the elements may keep out, the, the roof may keep out the elements for another day. In burning the physical frankincense, the material turns immaterial. An immaterial substance rises to an immaterial God, to a bunch of stone and bricks that may be listening to me and may not be listening to me at all. Today, more likely, that burning incense is uh, vaporizing some aromatic essential oil, aromatherapy. Aromatherapy studies look for the efficacy of smells in healing and mood altering. Smells we know scientifically register in our limbic system, in our emotions, in our memories. We can sometimes remember where we were because we smell something. Patchouli oil, patchouli always reminds me of my time in San Francisco and hippies. Real vanilla, real vanilla is the smell of my mother baking. Oh, I can smell that vanillin a mile away. <laughs> Oof. Yeah, it's an imposter smell to me. And our author, Brent Plate, writes, if smell is everywhere, is everything holy? Hazy can be the line between sacred and profane. And certainly one of our UU musicians, um, Peter Meyer, writes a song, Everything is Holy Now. That bird, those robins singing to us in the mor this morning, the smells of spring, maybe someday soon coming. So stone signifies relative permanence. Incense, smoke, smells are ephemeral, temporary, but stored away in our bodies. And then the third object is drums. Plate writes, the heart is a drum. Its beating is the rhythm of life. Its pulsing provides memories stretching back to our embryonic state. Sound that shaped and soothed us before seeing or speaking. Constant steady tempos indicate a good life. Erratic, rushing rhythms, a cause for concern. No pulse indicates an end. To be, to be is to beat.
Well, in her book, The Painted Drum, and I have talked about a lot of books, and I had to restrain myself. I only brought a very, very small part of my library. But I, I've always, in my practice, uh, brought a minister's bookshelf. And so the, the books that I've talked about today specifically are down here if you'd like to take a look at them. And this is one of the, 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 the books, The Painted Drum, by Louise Erdrich. She writes of the making of one drum, and... The making, of course, starts with a dream. Grandfather dreams that he must make a drum to make the beat of the community steady and strong again. So he gathers his equipment, he gathers his, his um, um, uh, adds and his, his axes and all those saws, the things that you need to, to get wood to make a drum and he puts them in his canoe, and he takes off up the river. Uh, on his journey, he is greeted by a very small pack of wolves, one wolf who looks over the cliff and looks at him. And he finally finds a stand of trees that look just right. And he ends up uh, examining each one of them for their, their health, healthiness, um, and ends up cutting one of them. And in, through this process, cuts a, a band through the tree, through the middle of the tree. And so, of course, you've got the, that whole round of, of log. And then he builds a fire, takes round stones, puts them in the fire to heat super hot, and then places one stone in the center of this round to heat and, and burn away the center. This is a long, slow process stone, one stone after one stone after one stone. And he finally has that finished outside of the drum. And Erdrich continues, grandfather's vision of how he would dress the drum, how he would, would um, decorate it, was still incomplete. The colors, symbols, and type of ornament the drum required still evaded his dreams. He couldn't get a picture in his mind, but on the way back, something happened that he was to describe many times after in his life. He reached the smooth waters of the bay across which stood his cabin, just as the sun threw red light off going down. A great cloud had come up behind him and lowered a blue shadow across the water. Just where that cloud stopped and the clear red sky began, there was a line of brilliant space. A yellow line grow, glowed across the earth and the lake with a startling radiance. As my grandfather paddled into that dazzling moment then, he heard a little girl's voice calling from shore. From the south, there was a clap of thunder. From the west, a stiff breeze blew. My grandfather put up his hand to test the wind, and the sun struck his hand a bright, startling red. He thought of the wolves and of the one that had watched him. He saw pictures. There they were, little girl, hand, wolf, the bowl of reflecting water cut in half by the yellow strip of light would be the design on the head of the drum. All was still in the four directions. He saw the whole thing in his mind. Well, of drumming, Plate writes, the dreams and the people around them create a personal pulse, a communal cadence, and a cosmic reverberation, 
all at once. So stones, incense, the smells, drums, and the fourth object is a cross. You could see me. I thought, well, I thought something not said in church company usually. And I thought, wow, there I am making a cross. It's an ancient symbol, an ancient symbol. The Egyptian Ankh uh, uses a cross within it, symbol of good fortune. The Yantra, a small cosmogram used by Hindus and Jains for meditation, is also in the, the sign of a cross. The Chinese symbol, this, the number 10, with the connotation of perfection, perfection and completeness. The Sanskrit bent cross, a symbol of good luck, well-being, a symbol used by the Navajo. We know this symbol more as the Nazi bent cross. But it was sacred to the Navajo. The sacred hoop of the Sioux, the medicine wheel, consists of a cross within a circle, representing the four directions of the world. The Ojibwe often made a circle of stone, each direction representing a different age, spirit, animal, virtue. Certainly when our women's groups get together, they make a, a circle and they close it to perform their ceremony, close it with song and words, open it again when the ceremony, the sacred, is done. Then, of course, there's the Christian cross in its many varieties and with its mixed symbology. In the most benign interpretation, the cross becomes a symbol of the link between heaven and earth, God and humans. The Christian cross is a sign of ultimate redemption, of new life. But this new life only comes about through the suffering and death of one mysterious, troubling, good man. We'll talk about that later in on Easter. The cross then is a link between life and death and new life. Now the cross to some folks have, has become a monstrous symbol of abuse of power, the confusing symbol of a father sacrificing his son, a disturbing symbol of violence, the spiritualizing of suffering, a chilling reminder of the abuse of power. I have a book by two ministers, both women, about that abusive use of the cross and suffering. As author Plate writes, symbols are sticky, attaching themselves to our collective conscious and unconscious bodies and minds. We've been trained to think about an image in one way and no amount of rewiring seems capable of changing it. In some ways, the simpler the symbol, the stickier it is, which is a large part of the reason crosses are such powerful, sacred objects. And so, like the Sanskrit cross, the swastika, the Christian cross, may for some of us be irredeemable as a sacred symbol. So, there's stones, there's smells, there's drums, there's cross, the cross, crosses. And finally, there's bread. Bread is not a universal religious symbol. 
Wheat is a crop that takes certain climates and a certain amount of space. Indeed, in, in 1897, naturalist John Muir, writing in The Atlantic, talked about how nature was being deforested, trees were being cut down so that we could be planting wheat. And he wrote, in the settlement and civilization of the country, bread more than timber or beauty was wanted. And in the blindness of hunger, the early settlers, claiming heaven as their guide, regard God's trees as only a larger kind of pernicious weed, extremely hard to get rid of. You think of your ancestors, yeah, digging out those tree roots. The clearing of fields for the raising of wheat stands in for the unthinking taming of wilderness, the greed and gluttony involved in moving the American empire west. And then, of course, we have that prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And give us our, this day our daily bread may not just mean the kind of bread we are used to, whether it has wheat or is gluten-free. It may mean rice or maize or sour gum or millet, buckwheat, barley, quinoa, oats. These days, more and more of our daily bread is gluten-free or our diets are simply carb-free. But the sharing of our daily bread of whatever food might consist. Communion. Communion is a widespread religious ritual. I've often heard our people talk about our coffee hour as being our communion. Being companions, calm with pana, bread, literally means being together in bread, panis. And the making of bread, ah, the making of bread by hand is a most ritualistic activity. The gathering of ingredients, the mixing, the rhythmic, almost hypnotic kneading, press and turn, press and turn, press and turn. And when it finally feels springy and of a piece, the setting aside to rise, the spark of life somehow being breathed into the wheat and the water. Yeah, yeah, I know about yeast, but it's magical too, especially if it happens in my house, which is so cold. Amazing. It rises. The release of that air, that, that life, the punching down, only for the dough to rise again is just a miraculous process. The shaping, the baking, the wondrous aroma, the sharing and eating, bare naked or, or slathered with good butter or jam or cheese. Um, I grew up Catholic, and so we had communion. Um, goodness, I, I went my first eight years to a Catholic school, and so we had Mass every morning. The only day I didn't go to Mass was Saturday. Um, and through the years, obviously, I drew away from, from um, the Catholic Church and found Unitarians in Milwaukee. Bless their hearts for being there for me. And then in Sitka, Alaska, and then in Vancouver, in Missoula, and here, and all around the Midwest, and all throughout the country, and overseas. Um, but several years ago, I went to church with an old high school friend, Mickey. And um, Mickey had been raised Catholic, but was disillusioned with it too. It had become Lutheran, um, ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, which although it sounds so conservative, is 
really the quite liberal branch of Lutheranism. Um, and it was communion time. And the, the minister called us all to the communion table to share in bread and some, some I'm not sure, it may have been honest to goodness wine. And um, Mickey, of course, rose and, and she said, Susie, aren't you going? And I said, Mickey, I don't believe in this. I don't believe that, that Jesus died for our sins or that his body and his blood is in that bread and wine. And, and Mickey said, oh, Susie, that is not, so not the point. The point is that we all believe in Jesus' message of love and inclusion and working for justice. And I said, well, I can believe in that. And I took communion for the first time in years. It's a powerful symbol. The holy made manifest, shared, and taken into oneself. Now, of course, this book talked about five and a half objects, and the half object is something so immaterial, um, uh, Plate only gave it a half a point, the soul. We use the palpable, the solid, the seemingly permanent in all these objects. We may use smells, memories, fleeting yet firm. The, the heartbeat brings a cadence to our days and nights. We notice the intersection of the up above and the down below of the outside and the inside of east and west and north and south, the scientific and the poetic, <clears throat> the crossroads we all face through life. And we share together we join together to share in whatever bounty we may have. We use all those symbols to gather together, and plate includes that half, the space where our body, the material, and our soul, our spirit of life, our breath, the, the fleeting, temporary, intangible, that place where body and soul meet. With the material, the sensual, we bind ourselves to that which cannot be easily named. With the sensate, the stuff of this earth, we do religion. We grow a garden and bring in the harvest to share, and we do religion. We care for a building, gather to talk about things that matter. We worship, we shape worth, <clears throat> and we do religion. We speak out for social action. We march, then we write letters, we call our senators, our representatives, and we do religion. We share food and drink, we commune with each other, and we do religion. We notice our own bodies and each other, we grow awareness, we pay attention, we make connections. We share in that infinite, invisible web, we are present. We grow our souls, our spirituality as individuals, and we grow our souls as a community of faith and trust and hope. We do religion here. Ah, I'm so, oh, that's so hard for some folks to swallow. It's taken me a lot of years to, to process that. But we do religion in more or less five and a half objects. May it be so. May it ever be so. May we make it so. Blessed be, and amen. I invite you to open your hymnals, to, ah, the teal hymnals, to number 1064, Blue Boat Home. Any 
if you would rise in body or spirit as you are able. that passes understanding, the peace that the world can neither give nor take away, live in us, work through us as we go out into the world. Carry that flame of hope and love, of justice and compassion, the search for truth in your hearts until we meet again. Please be seated for the postlude.
and save these questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you, and you should always know, wherever you may go, no matter where you are, I never will be my angel now it's time to sleep and still too many things I want to say remember all the songs you sang for me when we went sailing on in and like a boat out on the ocean, I'm rocking you to sleep. The water's dark and deep inside this ancient heart. You'll always be a part of me. Good night, my angel, now it's time to dream, and dream how wonderful your life will be. Someday your child may cry, and if you sing this lullaby, then in your heart there will always be a part of me. Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die, and I will be, and I will be.
think the lesson today is to be fallible. <laughs>